This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. John Person about his book, Arbiters of Patriotism, Right-Wing Scholars in Imperial Japan, which is out from University of Hawaii Press in 2020. Arbiters of Patriotism narrates the struggle for ownership of the moral high ground connoted by the word patriotism uh, within the Japanese empire. It does so through a political biography of two men, Mitsui Koshi and Minoda Muneki, who were two of the most important Japanists of the empire, and also members of the Genji Nippon Society, which also features uh, largely in the book. Person admits that, uh, for example, Muneki's reputation as a dangerous thinker uh, was well-deserved and that uh, Minoda's sordid reputation as well was uh, quite well-deserved among the nationalist polemicists of the early 20th century. But simultaneously, he urges us to reconsider uh, dismissing either man uh, as irrational fanatics or even as rightists, a category which is questioned throughout the book. Instead, Arbiters shows us that while the Genji Nippon Society thinkers advocated anti-socialist, anti-Marxist, fascist-adjacent political programs, uh, both Muneki and Mitsui were well-educated, often cosmopolitan, eclectic thinkers. Moreover, Genji Nippon wielded real power. Uh, Minoda in particular was behind the infamous academic repression of Minobe Tatsukichi for his imperial organ theory, for example, and that's something that comes up in the interview. Uh, and for that reason, uh, both men and Genji Nippon society uh, as a whole must be taken seriously. Also, uh, along with this, person demonstrates the exquisite irony that with socialism outlawed in 1925, the state began to see these raucous hardline nationalists as the next potential threat to order, stability, and the future of Japan. So, so the question that's being asked here, sort of at the macro level, is who in the end would be allowed to or be able to define genuine patriotism? Uh, And with that, who would be surveilled as a threat rather than hailed as a hero? Arbiters of Patriotism is centered around this kind of intellectual history, uh, but it's very much engaged with the realpolitik of the tensions between states and radical nationalists, which, as we discuss, is painfully relevant today. All right, so uh, Dr. Person, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. so as you probably know, uh, we start out the, uh, the episode here by asking you how you came to this project, uh, what motivated you to uh, study the, uh, what, what was what's the sort of background for your interest in the project that became Arbiters of Patriotism? Sure. And thanks for having me, Nathan. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and please uh, call me John. Um, I wish my answer to this question was as interesting as some of the others on the program. Um, I'm a big fan of the show. Mine's actually quite boring. Um, when I was an undergraduate student in Minnesota, I went to this small uh, liberal arts college called uh, Gustavus Adolphus College. And 
a religious studies scholar named Masao Abe came to campus for a semester. And I was probably one of a handful of students on campus who spoke fluent Japanese. So I was asked to serve as an interpreter while he became reaccustomed to speaking in English. And as I got to know Abe, I learned that he traced his own philosophical lineage to the Kyoto School, which I had never heard of before, but I <laughs> found uh, quite fascinating. Um, I was actually an international management major back then, so I was studying business, but I eventually declared a second major in religion and wrote my senior thesis on the Kyoto School and the issue of war responsibility. And it was actually during that undergraduate uh, research that I uh, encountered these figures that I ended up writing this uh, present book on. Um, but I, I went to graduate school with a full intention of writing about the Kyoto School, but so many people write on the Kyoto School, I, I just couldn't figure out a, a good research question. And the more I read about the right-wingers, the more I became curious about their status in the intellectual history of Japan. And uh, I found that sometimes when writers were defending the wartime action of certain intellectuals, and I, I mentioned this in the book, the argument would essentially come down to something like, yeah, there was some collaboration, and yes, there were some nationalistic musings, but they weren't as right-wing or nationalist as those guys, you know, referring to the, the people that I wrote this, this book on. And I found that to be a really odd argument and, and wanted to dig deeper uh, into what this is all about. Uh, yeah, so let, let me let me quickly first say that that's actually a much more interesting backstory than I think you think it is. Um, so so that's uh, this this. You know, you started by uh, talking a little bit about the problem of sort of who is the right wing um, and what does that mean philosophically. And I know that's going to be, a, a, I, I suspect, a big part of uh, what we end up talking about, because it seems to me that's one of the uh, you know, major themes of the book is how does one define what is right wing or left wing and what's conservative thought and what's radical and can you be radically conservative and what does all that mean? And and then how do those uh, categories actually apply on the ground in Japan? Um, because some of those, you know, are, are obviously imported categories. And then the question of like, do, are they round pegs in square holes, I think is a really big part of what you're doing here. Um, and that's a that's something that you begin to tackle in your introduction. And in fact, even in your title, right? Arbiters of Patriotism, um, which I think lays out this sort of central issue. Um, who gets to define what patriotism is uh, and how, right? Um, later on in chapter four, you call this, uh, and I think it's a great quote, the struggle over legitimate ownership of the, of the august mantra of patriotism. Um, and you refer to your two sort of central figures who will come to uh, and their their ilk uh, as radical nationalists, um, and you also show that their relationship to the state was often quite complicated um, and really volatile because they were trying to sort of usurp the moral high ground uh, that that is constituted in that sort of word or idea of patriotism, and to bend it to their own ends, uh, and that they especially effectively were able to do this after the rather infamous. Uh, 1925 peace preservation law outlawed communist and socialist thought in Japan. So I, I wonder if you could just sort of give us a, a big uh, overview, big picture uh, response to that. Yeah, yeah, you, I think you summed it up um, quite nicely. Um, Mitsui and, and Minoda were, you know, uh, quote unquote, radical nationalists in a really particular sense, uh, as I mean it. And that is that they deviate from a one of the primary functions of nationalism, which is maintaining order under the nation state framework. 
And it was a very fine line because uh, many state officials and various branches of the government often found that Minoda Mitsui's brand of nationalism to be you know, quite useful for various ends, whether it was the Ministry of Education trying to stamp out student leftists or some politicians accusing rivals of not being patriotic enough. Um, but, you know, at other times, government officials saw Mitsui Minoda as a nuisance or, you know, even a menace. And that's one of the more interesting things, I think, uh, that, that came out of my research. Mitsui and Minoda, these two guys that I cover in my book, no doubt, saw themselves as arbiters of the correct form of patriotism, but there was never any consensus over what that correct patriotism entailed. The overall picture that I draw is that the contents of patriotism, how people think it should be expressed, is is actually pretty arbitrary. But its overall function, the function of patriotism as a discourse for maintaining order, means that various, you know, quote-unquote, arbiters of patriotism will wield oftentimes contradicting forms of patriotism. And the government is the most powerful stakeholder in the fight over what patriotism entails. But, you know, within that, too, we find clashes of opinion. So what I find, and I highlight this in the chapter that you mentioned, uh, chapter four, is that the state officials lean towards pursuing the, what I see as the practical gains of promoting patriotism. And that's essentially removing forms of ideological opposition that are, are paired with physical violence, um, essentially terrorism. Right. So, so, yeah, so this is really interesting, this uh, distinction you're making between the function of patriotism and the content. Right. And I think this is a, a, a big part of uh, a couple of the central arguments of the book. Um, and I, I, I'm tentatively identifying two to three central arguments um, in Arbiters. Uh, the first is that, and this is something that we've alluded to already, this sort of left-right divide isn't particularly useful in understanding uh, the political philosophies of intellectual, uh, intellectuals, polemicists, et cetera, in the Japanese empire. Um, and the second one, which I think goes along with this, and it's also about the the historiography and the lexicon that we use and what that means is you're arguing that labels such as uh, irrational or fanatic, uh, and actually irrational fanatic being another one, um, are not very useful, right? And we should get rid of them uh, because they're just not that helpful in understanding these people um, and who you describe as Japanists. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about like what was Japanism? Um, and how does it fit into the political philosophies, particularly in that sort of second quarter uh, of the 20th century? Um, and in particular, I, and I, I guess this is the third argument, maybe. Uh, one of the things that you're showing is that Japanists could be surprisingly cosmopolitan in their um, intellectual heritage, their influences and their outlooks. Is that, I mean, am I sort of getting the, the three main arguments there, right? Yeah, I think uh, that's that. Uh... Absolutely right. Thanks for uh, reading so closely. Um, Japan, has, there isn't really a, a, a really coherent uh, organization or anything like this that um, are, are Japanist. Uh, they, uh, the people who sort of associate themselves with Japanism or, or Nihon Shugi, um, you know, do, do that in, in a kind of haphazard way. But it's really a, a kind of... Um, uh, series of, of ideas and philosophies that emerge really um, 
and, and coalesce really after the Russo-Japanese War when, when Japan is, is sort of established as a um, imperial force and the kind of ideas of, of um, uh, recouping ideas of um, nativism and, and things like that uh, and kind of having that serve as a, a, a principle of a philosophy or a political ideology. So Minoda, Minoda and, and Mitsui belong to this organization called the, the Genin Nippon Society, which we might translate it as uh, the J- Japan Principle Society. But, um, uh, you know, Genni Nihon, Genni can be also be, be the same word for fundamentalism, right? Genni Shugi is fundamentalism, but that kind of uh, describes their movement uh, accurately too. But, but really what they're aiming with Genni Nippon is to use Nihon itself, Japan, as sort of a uh, foundational principle for uh, political ideology. Now, with the stuff about the left-right divide, uh, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, that's a, a central focus of, of my book and, and one of the, the running themes. Um, as I read more and more writings by and about the so-called right-wing, I guess I grew more curious about the history of the, the word right-wing itself or ryoku in Japanese. And this led me to take a more historicist approach to the word rather than inheriting one of the many schemas that attempt to you know, differentiate between right and left, um, as if there's a, you know, universal spectrum of, of right and left, uh, kind of a spectrum that emerged from the French Revolution, right? So in short, one of the things that I try to do in the book is chart a history of the word right wing or ryoku and how the word functioned in political discourse. And I, I think that's one of the uh, valuable insights I bring is how right wing or ryoku emerged as a way for state organs, especially the police to label particular forms of nationalism and patriotism as extreme or inappropriate. Um, I realized early on in my research that I needed to take the rightists seriously, even if it was kind of against my own political instincts to do so. Um, but the literature on Minoda and Mitsui was often telling me that these people were irrational fanatics, as you put it, as if that's a helpful conclusion in itself. But you know, if we really want to get at the significance and power of the Japanists, we need to move past caricatures and try to get at the real stakes that led to their emergence. And in order to do that, I needed to figure out how words like right wing and fanaticism operate both in the historical moments that I investigate and in the secondary literature that, uh, you know, deal with those historical moments. Yeah. Um, it, it, I, I just, as a, Personal side note here. Uh, yesterday, as I'm sure you know, uh, you know we're recording on what is now uh, May 4th Japan time. Uh, so that means that yesterday was uh, Kenko Kinembi, the National Foundation Day, uh, and I live I live near a big park here uh, in the city of Nagoya, uh, where every year on uh, that National Founding Day, the almost exclusively seniors who make up the local Japanese Communist Party uh, supporters come and picnic in the party. And they are surrounded by the gentlemen with the very large black trucks with the very prominent uh, chrysanthemums all over the golden chrysanthemums and the very big loudspeakers. It is the only time of the year, though, and it's really interesting that you see large numbers of armed police. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of our listeners probably already know this, but you almost never see 
um, armed police in Japan. And the, 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 you can probably count on, the, on one hand the number of times most people have seen uh, Japanese police officers in flak jackets every year on May 3rd. Um, and, and I think it points to this sort of ongoing problem of who, of, of that relationship between state authority um, and this very radical faction um, who, whether you want to call them yoku, as everybody does, including, by the way, myself in Japanese, because uh, that's sort of just the standard way of referring to them. It, it, but, I, but I, you know, yesterday I really thought about whether that was a useful label, having, you know, read the book and sort of preparing for this. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was just really pleased that this was, you know, um, your book was helping me in, in real life uh, to, to understand what was going on in my own neighborhood. Um, but anyway, I want I wanted to do one last thing before we jump into the chapters and sort of go through them. Um, so we've been talking a little bit uh, already about uh, Mitsui Koshi and Muneki Minoda, who are the, the two figures um, who are central to the book. Uh, and as you mentioned, are part of this Genni Nippon society, uh, which is also, you know, features very, very uh, heavily. So, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the ideological landscape into which they're fitting? Because they're radically anti-socialist and they're self-described patriots, which I think gives us some idea of where they fit into uh, the, the landscape of their times. But you're also making the case that they're sort of fascist adjacent, I guess is maybe the best way I could put it, um, that they're engaged in an aestheticized politics of emotion. Uh, and, and at the same time, as you've already said, um, you don't want to dismiss that as irrational fanaticism, right? So that this politics of emotion versus irrational fanaticism, I think you're walking a fairly a fine line here, right? And it's one I appreciate, but I, I, can you tell us a little bit more about that and anything else we need to, un- to, to know in order to understand like how to position these men before we get into the book? Yeah, sure. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, and I think uh, some of it we'll, we'll do when we talk about uh, the individual chapters. Um, but, you know, t- to start, these, these people were, were highly educated folks. Um, both Mitsui and Minoda were graduates of Tokyo Imperial University. Uh, Mitsui went to the first higher school in Tokyo, the probably most prestigious higher, higher school. And, and Minoda went to the fifth higher school in his native uh, Kumamoto. Um, they both spoke the elitist language of the intellectuals of that era and were proficient in German and translated literary and, and philosophical works into Japanese. Um, you know, so we use the word uyoku to, to de- describe many people, but they're very different from the kind of um, assassins, for example, uh, the terrorists that emerged in the, in the 1930s. Um, Mitsui uh, was an independently wealthy public intellectual, uh, and probably more importantly, a poet that was a you know was a very visible figure in the conservative opinion journal circuit, which you know uh, probably helped in placing him placing a distance between him and the terrorist activity of the 1930s. All right, uh, and Minoda was an academic. He was a professor of philosophy first at um, Keio University, later at Kokushikan uh, University. Um, Mitsui was the older of the two and a mentor to Minoda, but uh, Minoda is probably the more famous of the two. And listeners uh, familiar with modern Japanese history might recognize Minoda as the kind of the guy behind the scenes in the Imperial Organ Theory incident of 1935, which is um, 
the most famous case of academic suppression in, in Japanese history. Um, so these two made a career out of accusing professors of being communist uh, or sympathetic to communism, which they essentially equated with treason, uh, right? Uh, they, their society was founded in 1925, and they had a monthly uh, called Genin Nippon that ran for 20 years, uh, so until 1944. And over the course of those 20 years, uh, Minoda Mitsui and their fellow contributors wrote hundreds of articles accusing professors of treachery, basically. So, you know, in that sense, they're some of the most notorious nationalist intellectuals of, of this era. And so, you know, what, what defines the, their organization is, I think, anti, anti-communism and the academy. So they're very different from perhaps more famous nationalists like Kitaiki, uh, who is famous for, you know, ideas about state socialism, to, to put it somewhat um, uh, frankly, I guess, uh, sort of ideas about um, reorganizing uh, the, the state and, and things like that. And also different from, you know, pan-Asianists like uh, Okawa Shume and uh, um, people with the Genyosha and, and those kinds of organizations. You know, we Japan is a, a vast empire during the, this, these years, but you see very little um, reference to Koreans or, or Chinese um, uh, in, in the pages of, of Genin Nippon. It's, it's more about uh, their, their, um, their project is to tear down imperial university professors who they think are, are treacherous because their overall belief is that, you know, those are the professors, especially in the law program, who are training the, the elite of, of the future. Uh, and if they are, they turn into um, reds, then, then Japan is in, in, in trouble. Um, so I guess that's sort of where where they they, they fit. Yeah, that, that's extremely helpful uh, in sort of situating us as we get into uh, the individual chapters. Um, and chapter one, uh, the title of which is From Writing the Self to Reading the Nation, uh, actually starts out with uh, Bitsui, the poet, uh, and in particular, his ethno-nationalist theories of poetry. Um, one of the things I, uh, I, I really uh, enjoyed the, uh, the, the the quote early on that uh, Mitsui's reputation as a dangerous thinker is well warranted. Um, so how did so how did he conceive of? And this is what was sort of you know fascinating to me is that you're introducing him as a poet, but as a dangerous poet. Um, and there's something there's a sort of romantic appeal to that on the one hand. But uh, I wonder if you could tell us about his conceptions of poetry, uh, what was dangerous about him and his poetry. Um, and how did he come to these beliefs? And, and, and you know, what was their sort of ethno-nationalist content? Um, what about his interpretation of poetry and its relationship to both individual and collective identity in particular, I guess, was dangerous? Um, and how does this relate to his veneration of um, the Meiji Emperor's poetry in particular, which I found quite fascinating as a sort of, you know, anecdote about Mitsui? Yeah, uh, when I started writing this book, I didn't think I would be writing about poetry, uh, to, to tell the truth. And, and you know, this, this was a, a completely new subject for me, but uh, I, I enjoyed, enjoyed uh, working on this. Um, so this chapter focuses on Mitsui's uh, career before he founded the Genin Nippon Society, when he was still just coming out of uh, the, the university and, and kind of making a name for himself as a poet and a literary critic. 
sometime after that, I started publishing more political opinion pieces. Uh, Mitsui saw himself as a disciple of Masao Kashiki, uh, the poet who revolutionized haiku poetry in, in Meiji Japan. Uh, in fact, uh, Shiki is, is the person who, I believe, coined the term haiku. So uh, just a giant in, in the field of, of uh, poetics in, in Japan. And Mitsui had never met uh, um, Shiki, but uh, because he, uh, uh, Mitsui, uh, or Shiki, excuse me, um, died very young of, of tuberculosis. Um, but he joined um, Shiki's uh, organization uh, for, for Waka, for Tanka, the Nigishi Tanka Society, and quickly became one of the leaders of that organization. And Mitsui, you know, w- was a huge fanboy, really, of, of Masao Kashiki and, and saw Shiki's intervention as, you know, revolutionizing uh, haiku. And for Mitsui, his sort of project was to do the same for, for Waka poetry which is another genre of, of Japanese poetry. Mitsui differentiated between haiku and waka uh, by saying that haiku is a spatial genre, while waka is more of a temporal genre. And what he meant by that is, uh, as most of the listeners probably know, haiku is 575 syllabic verses. So it's really short, right? Uh, so the poet, uh, according to, to Mitsui, strives to create an impressionistic abstract image based on what the poet sees. And he's going off of Shiki's idea of chasse or sketching, which took a lot of cues from painting, which is, of course, a, a, a spatial genre. So that's, that's uh, uh, Mitsui's idea of haiku. Uh, now, Mitsui thought that waka, which is different from uh, haiku, it's a little bit longer, it's 57577. Seven, seven. So it's 14 more syllables. And he immediately thought that's actually long enough for capturing something more concrete uh, and less abstract. And kind of going from that, argued that waka was a genre of emotion. So expressing emotion through time, and that's what makes it a temporal genre uh, for, for Mitsui. So expressing emotion through time as it's being experienced. And this is really what's, what uh, is, is uh, I think, um, central to his idea. So instead of 57577, Mitsui argues that waka should just be a straight 31 syllables without interruption. And what he wants waka then to do as a genre is to convey the authentic emotions of the poet as its experience. So it's like a straight transcription, <laughs> unmediated, if you can call it that, because poems are, of course, a, a medium, but that's, that's the basic idea, right? That it's an unmediated um, representation of the poet's authentic emotion. So at that really early point for Mitsui, his theory of waka really is championing uh, the expression of the individual. But then Mitsui's theory kind of goes through a, a nationalist turn uh, when he starts considering the history of poetic language. And even though he initially argued that haiku was incapable of transcribing emotion because it's too short, he later reconsidered that position, arguing that symbolic seasonal words called kigo that poets often use in writing poetry, including in haiku, were actually a product of an accumulation of national sentiment associated with experiencing that kind of particular natural phenomena associated with the seasons. Uh, 
Um, so if a poet refers to, you know, a particular seasonal bird in his or her poem, they aren't referring to the actual zoological animal, but they're referring to the emotion that that person, and importantly, a Japanese person, experiences when they're seeing that seasonal bird. So here, uh, language itself comes to be a crystallization of national emotion for Mitsui, right? In other words, what uh, was at first a theory of poetry that was about directly transcribing the individual's own emotion becomes this theory that uh, confirms the Japanese-ness of <laughs> one's own emotion. So this is sort of the, the crux of his, his nationalist turn. And, you know, right around that time that he starts writing about this stuff is when uh, the Emperor Meiji dies. And Mitsui really starts getting into the late emperor's poetry. Um, Meiji uh, was a really important figure for Mitsui, and, and he saw him as one of the two most towering figures in Japanese history. The first was Prince Shotoku, the ancient imperial regent who, you know, uh, according to the legend, was instrumental in incorporating Confucianism and Buddhism into state ideology. Um, and Mitsui believed that Meiji played a similar role in presiding over Japan's um, I guess, integration into the global geopolitical situation where, you know, Western ideas of science uh, and technology were, were reigning supreme. So, you know, Meiji and, and Shotoku, he sees this similarity where they're both the people who were able to incorporate, quote-unquote, foreign ideologies and yet maintaining a constant Japanese-ness, right? That's sort of one of the core ideas about this uh, Japanism. Um, and, you know, and as we know from people like Donald Keane, Meiji wrote a lot of waka poetry. And, you know, recalling Mitsui's idea that waka is the unmediated transcription of emotion, Mitsui's basic idea was that if we read Meiji's waka, we can experience unmediated Meiji's emotions as he led Japan's modern revolution into an imperial power. And I think, I, as I mentioned, Mitsui was an intellectual who came of age around the time of Japan's victory in the Russo-Japanese War, right? Which um, he saw Meiji as a central guiding figure in that process. And so war and service to uh, the, the nation in that form is, is a really important, crucial aspect of, you know, understanding Meiji's kind of um, sadness as he, as he writes Waka poetry about the, the fallen soldiers in the, in the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, etc. Uh, and so essentially what Mitsui was doing was collapsing the emotions of Meiji and the Japanese state and the emotional life of every Japanese person into this problematic package. And that's what I, I'm, I'm kind of referring to in, in talking about how this is, is, is dangerous. And um, this is something that I talk about it at the beginning and the end of that chapter. This ideological potential of Mitsui's work is actually still on display uh, today at the Yushuka Museum at Yasukuni Shrine in, in Tokyo. Um, I think many of the listeners have perhaps visited this place, uh, and if they haven't, I, I really um, encourage them to do so <laughs> because it's a really fascinating uh, place. But if you go uh, to the main exhibit, uh, there the first room is called the Spirit of the Samurai. I think uh, Japanese is mononofu no seishin. And there, Mitsui's, uh, Mitsui Koshi's waka poem is, is displayed prominently. 
one of four uh, uh, poets, and, and Mitsui is the one who's chosen as the, the modern uh, poet with the ancient and the medieval and, and the early modern poets sort of uh, um, around the room in, in the four corners. And then in the middle is the martial sword with the chrysanthemum on it. And, you know, the basic idea of this room is to frame our museum experience, the museum goers experience of Japan's imperial expansion and the thousands of soldiers that perished in those wars um, there as sort of, you know, the, the, the sacrifice and the death of the, of, of these people come naturally to the Japanese, right? That's sort of the, the basic message of, of Mitsui's um, poetry and his, his theory of, of poetics there. And uh, you know, the, it begins with that uh, room and, and of course ends with these uh, heartbreaking letters that the, the soldiers have, have written to their, their family members before they, they end their demise. And so what, what Mitsui's theories and his poems and the, the museum exhibit itself does is, is really um, collapse those emotions into sort of the, the national sentiment of, of the state itself. And, and uh, I think that's dangerous. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I also, I think actually, uh, John, that you you may have uh, given us, you may actually have given us the less interesting version of your um, origins story here, because it's really, you know, the international business to ethno-nationalist poetry line is is very much the, uh, what a long, strange trip it's been. Um, but yeah, I think that, you, you know, you've set that up really nicely about um, the that question of, um, an aesthetic politics and uh, an emotional politics and what's dangerous uh, about that. Um, and then in chapter two, you're following this up. Uh, chapter two is J- Japanese democ- uh, democracies and Taisho restorations. Um, you're following it up by looking at Mitsui in the teens and 20s, uh, the period of the so-called Taisho democracy. Um, so can, can you tell us how Mitsui fits into the picture of that so-called Taisho democracy and how he and that idea sort of mesh or conflict with the idea of a Taisho restoration? Uh, in other words, a sort of revolution in Japan along the lines of the Meiji restoration. Um, what, how is he staking out his position in there? And, and you know, what, what is his emotional politics uh, doing there? Because you write that his basic position was that rights criticism and economic opportunity should primarily serve the interests of the nation. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, and I, I should uh, begin by, by uh, stating that Taisho democracy is a term that, that we historians often use to talk about this era. Right. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a term that, that comes after the fact that I believe it was coined in the 1950s and, the, the concept refers kind of generally to some of the major political developments of the greater Taisho era, um, usually between 1905 or 1932 or thereabouts. And uh, during those years, we see increased political engagement, um, expanding suffrage right, rights for men, 
uh, greater visibility of unions and, and, and that kind of stuff, uh, things that we associate with democracy. But the idea of Taisho Yishin, Taisho Restoration, which, you know, before coming to this project, I, I hadn't really heard of uh, much at all. Um, but it's actually a concept that we see invoked again and again during the Taisho era. And, you know, depending on, on who is invoking the term, they, they mean kind of different things. But, but there's a general sort of um, thing that ties it all together. And it's the basic idea that the Meiji Restoration of 1868 uh, didn't go far enough. And the next step is for the political consciousness of the masses to awaken so that the political base of the nation can, can widen. Uh, and the idea is if more and more people are voting, then uh, perhaps there won't be corrupt politicians running the government and, and uh, then uh, the nation can, can um, move forward towards an enlightened, truly imperial um, uh, polity. So, you know, but the basic idea here is the awakening of the political uh, consciousness of the masses so they can participate in, in politics. And in, in that sense, it dovetailed um, with a lot of the developments of the Taisho years um, that we associate with Taisho democracy, right? It's more and more people participating in politics. But the important point is that uh, this idea of Taisho restoration uh, framed these democratic politics as something developing under and in support of imperial rule. So that's sort of the important um, underlying um, uh, politics of, of the Taisho Restoration. And, you know, one of the reasons why I started thinking about this is after Japan's surrender in 1945, you know, as you might expect, Mitsui was among those people who were purged uh, by the U.S. occupation. So he wasn't allowed to write uh, in public forums anymore. But in his private writings during that time, we actually see him writing in praise of democracy, uh, which left a lot of later observers, historians, kind of scratching their heads, right? Was Mitsui committing some sort of tenko or apostasy? What, what, what's the deal here? Uh, because you know, he was really critical of democracy written katakana as demokurashi in, in the decades prior, in the 30s and 40s especially. So I think it's natural to see this as an ideological break. But the point I, I want to make in this chapter is that there's actually some consistency between Mitsui's writing during the Taisho years uh, and his post-1945, what people consider this turn towards democracy. Um, just to give a little bit more about Mitsui, he was a tremendously wealthy landowner in Yamanashi Prefecture. So he had a personal financial stake in the pro-rights uh, and union movement of the Taisho years. Uh, but somewhat paradoxically, we see him publicly make statements sympathetic to proletarian movements of this era during the Taisho years. He was all for universal suffrage for men, for example, and expanding the rights of the workers, uh, including tenant farmers. But when the rubber hit the road, it was mostly lip service. Um, and the basic idea here is that, yeah, rights should be uh, expanded um, and uh, people should be able to vote, but all in service to this basically the status quo of how politics already works. And, and sure enough, he had really intense clashes with tenant farmers who, who worked on his land. And, and at one point, he, he even left his village for several years in exchange for an agreement that his tenants would not become Marxists, essentially. So for Mitsui, expanding rights and opportunities uh, for the proletariat was secondary to his nationalist moralist status quo in which people maintain their place in society with the emperor at the top 
and landowners like Mitsui serving as as local leaders, right? And his his basic assumption is is that uh, everybody naturally shares these sentiments already. And the reason why they don't believe in this sort of established hierarchy of Japanese society is because they've been poisoned with with socialism and, and Marxism. So if they only awaken to the true sort of national sentiment and the way how it's going to work for the Japanese empire to succeed, then then they would fall in line, essentially, and they would exercise those rights in the correct manner, uh, according to Mitsui's um, kind of idea of how democracy works. So I think Mitsui's so-called democracy is better understanding that kind of Taisho restoration discourse, right? It's the next stage of the Meiji restoration in which the masses awaken to their political consciousness as imperial subjects, and they exercise their rights and pursue opportunities in the service of imperial rule. Um, and, you know, I, I learned a lot from uh, Andrew Gordon's framework of imperial democracy and, and how he talks about sort of nationalism and, and democracy in, in that sense. And I think Taisho restoration or Taisho Ishin kind of gives us a concrete concept that was in usage at that time that kind of helps us understand the, the relationship between this kind of conservative nationalism and the democratic movements of, of the era. And, and it also helps us understand the emergence of this idea of Showa Ishin, which I think is more famous, right? Uh, it comes under the reign of Hirohito. Um, initially, people referred to it as an extension, extension of uh, the Taisho Restoration, i.e. the awakening of the political subjectivity of imperial subjects. And um, I got my, my book right here. The, the cover of my book uh, is actually an election poster that's urging people to exercise their right to vote in the 1928 elections, which was the first elections after the passage of uh, universal suffrage for men. And the poster says, Showa Ishin Yoron Seiji ga Jitsugensu. So through the Showa restoration, a politics based on public opinion is going to be realized. Right? So it's it's this idea that you know head to the polls and and uh, politics is going to be better and head towards the glory of, of the empire, which is completely different for our, from our common image of Showa restoration, which is also about making politics better by removing corruption, but with the pistol and the sword, right? Uh, killing uh, the, the corrupt uh, um, politicians and, and, uh, and instating this, this restoration or revolution through, through murder and terrorism. So there's this kind of really interesting, I think, shift in, in what people mean by Shoah uh, Ishin in those early Shoah years. Yeah, so I wanted to uh, sort of ask you a little bit of a follow-up here, because one of the things that I, I found ironic when reading the book, and, and even more so now listening to you, uh, you know, boil it down a little bit, is that you know, functionally, um, at a structural level, right, I mean, Mitsui's argument about the uh, poisoning of the people with, you know, Marxist and socialist thought, um, and that if only they could, you know, be, if only we had the antidote to that, then everybody would uh, naturally feel this way, um, which is, you know, I don't think unique to Mitsui in any way, but it strikes me as particularly ironic, given that it's basically a Marxist false consciousness argument, just <laughs> in the opposite direction. Sure. And I yeah. wonder if, you, I, I, I mean, am I, 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 first of all, I hope I'm understanding that correctly. And second of all, I wonder what you think about that. 
Yeah, no, I think uh, I think you're onto something there, um, and you know, I think it it ties into some of the things that we'll probably talk about later on with with chapter five, especially right where I, I try to draw out some of the the kind of parallels that I see with with at least one particular intellectual who associates is more associated with with Marxism uh, and this idea that. Um, the right consciousness, not the false consciousness, but the right consciousness is going to make the world a better place was central to the Geninipon society's politics. The, um, the central book that Minoda writes and, and sort of is the crystallization of his ideas. <laughs> crystallization is a wrong word because it's so long and long-winded. It's not really a crystallization, but anyway, it's titled Gakujutsu Ishin or the restoration of scholarship, right? And, I think that that title really neatly captures his his idea here, right? If only scholarship is restored, uh, it's going to make uh, the the populace believe in in and actually have the correct political will. Not just believe, but but have the political subjectivity to act upon that that those beliefs that they have. And so it's it's really a, an educational uh, project that they have. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right. It's a, it's a false consciousness narrative here. Yeah, which, you know, again, I mean, it, it, it's, it's ironic. I don't think it, it's necessarily sort of central to, to what you're arguing here, but it, it strikes me as, um, you know, a sort of interesting problem in the, the, the sort of politics of persuasion, right? Um, you know, there's that sort of information gap model of if only you knew all the information I have, uh, or the correct information that you would obviously believe the things that I believe, right? And there's this sort of naive realism that comes with that. Um, and and I, I kept feeling like uh, both men, Yamitsui and, and, and Minoda, are sort of, you know, in some sense, is falling into that trap. And again, uh, there's no reason to believe that they're not in the majority, but that they're just doing it in this, <clears throat> excuse me, somewhat idiosyncratic way. Um, and that, that gets us to Minota, who, who is really, I think, the focus of the second half of the book. Um, and you begin to talk about him uh, in chapter three in depth, uh, international nationalisms and the suppression of socialism. Um, and so at the outset of the chapter, you observe that uh, of the numerous Japanese intellectuals of the early 20th century who have been associated with the repressive political climate of these years, there is perhaps no single person with as sordid a reputation as Minota Muneki. Um, and like your introduction of Mitsui, I sense that you really enjoyed writing that sentence for one thing. Um, but you know, before we get to this uh, unsavory rep and how he earned it, um, set the scene for us, right? Because at the end of chapter two, uh, and as you've already talked about, um, you're pointing out that the uh, 1925 passage of the peace preservation law and simultaneously, roughly, the general election law marked the beginning of this, you know, sort of genuinely new era, I, I guess, in a sense of restoration of sorts in Japanese politics. Um, how do these legal changes affect the political and ideological climate into which Minoda uh, is then entering and, and which you're going to be analyzing him? Yeah, no, thanks for picking up on that. Um, the, the peace preservation law and the general election law were uh, uh, passed just days between one another in 1925. And essentially the general election law extended voting rights to all adult men um, for the first time. And the 
peace preservation law aimed to curb people's abilities to form political uh, parties that the authors of the law thought might alter the state in a way that was not palatable to them. And the peace preservation law, and this is maybe the most famous uh, law of, of Imperial Japan, um, the, the Koktai, uh, which is sometimes translated as national essence or national polity, and private property rights are both explicitly noted as the two pillars that are sort of hands-off, right? That preserving the peace means preserving the Koktai and preserving private, private property. So in passing these laws almost simultaneously, what the message is, yes, you have now rights to vote and uh, vote for political parties of your choice, but they may not touch the koktai or private property rights. In other words, sort of this kind of slippery uh, um, combination of, of the government and the emperor, as well as capitalism. <laughs> and it's a really interesting law in that sense. Um, I think what, what's really important in, in the context of, of my book is what, it, what this law allowed people like Mitsuya and, and Minoda to do. And it allows them to cr criticize their enemies as not just treacherous, but also engaging in illegal activity, right? It's one thing to point your finger at somebody and say, you're a traitor, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, sticks and stones. Uh, but if you're saying that it's illegal, well, then you might have police officers knocking on your door uh, as a result of these polemics. And what, what I think Mitsumi you know, that did was to weaponize the, the law and brandish it uh, quite visibly in their polemics. And they actually took people to court. And they weren't, you know, always successful in those, those uh, in, in, in bringing uh, people to court. But, you know, we're, we're professors and we can imagine, you know, just the stress of, of going through something like that. And so Minona and Mitsu quickly gained their reputation as you know, these nationalist polemicists that you don't want to quarrel with, because if you're criticized on the pages of their magazines, you are in a world of trouble of not just harassment, but you could end up losing your job, which some people did. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that many academics, you know, were self-censoring uh, for fear of being targeted by, by, by Minoda and Mitsui. So when I say that the peace preservation law changed the political and ideological climate of the era, I'm referring to that added legal stake that just sort of increased the fear uh, factor of all of this to uh, a whole new level. Yeah, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, you're, you're one of those people who, you know, where you're in the unfortunate situation of your book being probably a great deal more politically relevant than you had intended when you initially uh, uh, began to write it. But, but this is one of those places where I think, you know, all of us understand uh, the idea of being trolled, right? Uh, and, and, you know, if you sort of, you know, put this into a social media context of, you know, being, you know, uh, uh, ratioed on Twitter and having people dox you and all these, and, and all these things that, uh, are you know very much in a lot of people's minds these days? Um, I think it, you know sort of there's a there's a meaningful analogy there, right? It's obviously not the same thing, but I think it was also one of those you know fascinating incidences where yeah, you know, social media certainly makes that easier, um, but it didn't 
you know, it, it, it's definitely not the cause of the problem, right? And I think that this is, it, it was a really fascinating, uh, for me, uh, a place to sort of see that actually playing out um, in this very, very pre-social media uh, uh, sort of climate. Um, and so uh, let me just uh, put that out there as a comment and, and take us back into, uh, you don't have to editorialize there, uh, if you, if, but if, feel free to if, you, if, if you'd like to. But um, I wanted to sort of, you know, to get on to the next question about this particular chapter. Um, so Minoda uh, is is one of a, a group of nationalists, uh, sort of loosely uh, intellectually associated nationalists, who are attempting to develop um, a, a, a notion of uh, ethnic nation or ethnos, uh, the Japanese word minsoku, which is one of those terrible, difficult to define uh, amorphous protean words, but this sort of, uh, you know, something like the German folkish nation uh, idea as a countervailing theory uh, to combat class-based solidarity coming out of Marxism, right? Another way to define the collective. Um, and as you point out, this often means that they're, uh, you know, on some of the same grounds as their Marxist adversaries, right? And this is why I brought up the false consciousness thing, because I think it's another example of the sort of structural parallels, if not content parallels, right, between them. Um, and Minota in particular uh, is was enamored of uh, Wilhelm Wundt, uh, I, I, my apologies for any German pronunciation issues, but um, who's somebody I hadn't heard of, uh, a German psychologist slash philosopher um, who had this theory of folk ethnic psychology. Um, and he's also very interested, uh, Minota is, in the apostate uh, Henrik de Man. So what did de Man and Wundt offer to Minota? And what concrete effects uh, did his incorporation of their ideas have um, beyond the sort of his thinking as an individual or the writings uh, in Gendi Nippon? Sure, yeah. Um, thanks for that question. Um, Wilhelm Wundt uh, was somebody that I hadn't heard of before embarking on this project either, but uh, evidently he was extremely popular among uh, young intellectuals during this, this time. And not just, you know, these kinds of nationalists like Minoda, um, for example, his sort of theories about uh, psychology um, was of interest to people like Nishida Kitaro, too, who writes about pure experience and, and kind of, um, uh, so it, it speaks to not just sort of these kinds of, of minzoku issues, but also to um, more sort of metaphysical uh, directions that people took with, with, uh, with uh, one's psychological theories. And so Minoda is kind of tapping into that that culture as as somebody who, uh, you know, um, kind of developed intellectually in the in the Tokyo Imperial University kind of milieu. I think um, Minoda's ambition was to elevate anti-Marxism to a kind of science that was grounded in a rigorous understanding of, of reality, which he thought that Marxism didn't offer. Uh, he criticized early Marxist thinking as being too deterministic, which, you know, uh, fellow Marxists were doing at the same time. Uh, and he essentially argued that people have more agency than simply moving from one economic stage to another. So he's really arguing that's a pretty early form of, of Marxism. At the same time, he argued that class struggle wasn't the correct lens for understanding historical development. So he was essentially arguing that Marx's explanation for economic and social changes in England isn't necessarily applicable to other historical contexts. 
But he believed that the theories of the folk by people like Wundt offered an alternative and a better explanation, as it were, for how societies develop. Um, so for, for Minoda, the ethnos brought together, you know, something that we talked about earlier, sort of the ethnic um, kind of idea of language uh, that Mitsui really talked about, uh, religion, rituals, forms of labor, all this kind of stuff as a kind of local package and understanding um, social developments on, on more of a local level than kind of a universal level. I think we got to say that in choosing the national or Japaneseness as the primary way to frame uh, how to understand these local practices, you know, there's already kind of on, on shaky grounds in terms of historical methodology. So I just want to put that out there. And also we need to understand that his understanding of class struggle is, is also pretty, pretty reductive, uh, especially considering how robust discussion about that issue in Japan was at the time already uh, just I mentioned Fukumoto Kazuo in that chapter. Uh, Tosaka Jun is, a, is another one. But I, I think it's a, important uh, to highlight the fact that Minoda is drawing from an international anti-Marxist discourse and building his argument, right? And he frames it as a scientific debunking of, of Marxism. Because sometimes there's this assumption that nationalists like Minoda were xenophobic anti-Westerners. Um, and there's some truth to that. But there's also kind of attempts to frame him as this kind of in kind of an Orientalist way as sort of this shaman kind of weirdo who, who channels, I don't know what, uh, and, and shaman is a word that, that people have, have sometimes used to, to frame Minoda. But Minoda was, was uh, part of an international circulation of these kinds of nationalist and anti-Marxist literature and political movements. And, and so if we sort of simply frame Minoda as this kind of, xenophobe and anti-Westerner, we, we kind of lose sight of, of that kind of what's, what's going on uh, globally, right? Uh, as for Henri Demont, he was the uncle of the more famous Paul Demont, who listeners probably are more familiar with. Um, the, the elder Demont lost his faith in the international socialist movement. So he was a very committed uh, socialist uh, up until World War One, where he was a soldier for his country, uh, Belgium, and he saw for many of his former comrades going to war with one another. And, and on top of that, he saw that the economic and political standing of the working class was becoming much higher than it was when, when Marx was writing. And accompanying that, uh, nationalism was becoming an important sentiment of the working class uh, across Europe. And for him, that meant that international solidarity among workers was just no longer practical. It, it, was, it was impossible. So Demand then moved towards sort of a, a nationalist planned economics, which, you know, that seemed to have found distasteful because it, it reeked of communism, perhaps, to him. But for, you know, that Demand was really useful because he was an example of an avowed socialist now disavowing international socialism because of the rise of nationalism, right? So it seemed to kind of um, uh, endorse some of the ideas that you know, that had about nationalism being sort of the, the new essential uh, way that, that societies uh, develop across time. And Demand's kind of life story really appealed to Minoda because he 
could sort of cite it as uh, an actual socialist saying, you know, socialism is, is passe. Uh, we're entering uh, an age of, of, of nationalism. Um, and so whenever he was, you know, critiquing different kinds of socialists, he would again and again cite uh, Demand and saying, uh, your ideas are obsolete. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I, I, I found um, this sort of, I, I guess I guess my question is: Did, did you feel in writing this uh, that he was, you know, what's the word, cherry picking? I guess, um, you know, just sort of uh, uh, picking these these two two people that uh, confirmed his own biases, or because that's kind of how I felt in in, in reading this. Yeah, I, I think so, um, yeah. especially in um, his citing of of Japanese Marxist thinkers. Um, he really uh, was, um, sorry, uh, uh, you know, um, aiming at low-hanging fruits uh, because those were Marxist scholars like um, uh, Kawakami Hajime who were already, you know, uh, criticized by by other Marxists. And, and uh, he was writing at the same time as people like uh, Kumoto Kazuo, who I, who I mentioned, but for some reason he doesn't, you know, uh, attack the new forms of this kind of dialectical materialism that he was, yet he had been criticizing. So um, I think it it shows the the limitations of, of Minoda's ideas, right? And it I, I think at different times I try to be charitable to Minoda uh, in in how he chose his targets, but. Um, Part of it was just a limitation of his his critique of, of Marxism. Um, it, it wasn't really up to date to where Marxist theory was, really at the time of his writing. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I guess I felt that there was a little bit of uh, straw man kind of argumentation here, and that you know you you pick the people who are already discredited, uh, and as you say, they're low hanging fruit. Um, by the way, just just for our, our listeners, there was a little bit of uh, background noise. I'm sure we're all by this point uh, very familiar with uh, all sorts of interruptions working at home. Uh, uh, John apparently has a, a lovely dog who's very lonely and <laughs> would like to spend more time. Uh, but we'll, so we'll let you do that soon, but not quite yet, because I want to talk about the last couple of chapters here. Um, so chapter four, uh, Surveilling the Right. Um, so if, if readers haven't picked up on the present implications of your work by this point, uh, which I highly doubt, uh, they're certainly going to do it here. Um, and it's also the chapter where the tables are turned on uh, Minoda and, and others like him. Um, so on the one hand, by 1935, as you put it, he had become the most feared Japanist polemicist of his time. But then on the other hand, uh, radical nationalists are increasingly being subjected to state scrutiny. Um, so, as, as you've already said, you know, when the en- enemy was the Bolsheviks, the Reds, etc., then the radical nationalists, your Minotas and Mitsuis, etc., could be friends of the state, right? They could uh, put aside small differences. Um, and then, as you put it, however, the, quote, cure served as the poison. Nationalism was now revolutionary, at least in the sense that it was a threat to the government. 
Um, and I, I think it's a really wonderful line. Um, and, and you go on to, to sort of argue that for agents of the state, um, the problem was especially acute because, quote, this new generation of thought criminals was now appointing themselves as the arbiters of patriotism. And this is where I, I guess your, your title is coming from uh, or vice versa. Uh, and also because some of them were criminals in more than just thought. Um, so this growing unease, this tension between state and nationalists, um, which revolves around actual violence on the one hand and intellectual debates on sovereignty and the state on the other, um, what's the effect on uh, thinkers like Minoda? I mean, it, 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 does it have the same kind of chilling effect uh, that we were talking about with the you know, doxing and trolling sort of problems in, uh, in, in previous chapters? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I really enjoyed writing and, and researching for this chapter, and it, it really, um, I think, shaped the, the direction of, of the book in, in many ways. Um, yeah, the, there's this growing tension, as you put it, in, in the, between state actors and nationalists in the 1930s. Um, uh, and, you know, Minoda and uh, nationalists like him had a close relationship, a working relationship with different bureaucrats, especially in the Ministry of Education as um, the, the, the perceived threat from the perspective of the government of, of leftist students became quite acute, right? Um, and because I was coming to this project from that, that lens of the suppression of, of leftist students uh, and the like, I kind of assumed that there was a close relationship between people like Minoda and Mitsui and, and the, the state as a whole, right? As, as reductive as, as that is. Um, but the events that, uh, that happened in the 1930s really give officials pause about the status of nationalism in Japan. Um, and those events are, of course, the assassinations that, are, uh, that occur throughout the 1930s. Some of them uh, date back before the 1930s, but it's really... 1932, where police officers are starting to say, uh-oh, something's, something's not good. And that's the Kitsumedan incident, which saw the assassination of former finance minister, Inoue Junosuke. And uh, about a month later, uh, a leader, the leader of the Mitsui conglomerate, Dan Takuma, was assassinated by um, a nationalist, uh, and both uh, under the, this idea of Shoaishin, right? And then a couple months later, the May 15 incident when Prime Minister Inukai Tsuyoshi is, is, uh, is, is murdered. And all, all of these assassinations occur under sort of this banner of patriotism, right? That we are um, removing these uh, leaders because, because they're, they're not fit for, for the current moment. The show up restoration slogan was especially really visible in that um, in those movements. And it's no longer that benign idea that I related to earlier of the political awakening of the imperial subjects. So they would, you know, head to the polls and vote for, for better uh, um, representatives. Now these self-appointed restorationists are calling government officials uh, servants of the Bakufu or Bakudi. Uh, which signals something much more alarming from the perspective of the state officials, right? Because if you remember, the Tokugawa Bakfu served the shogun and not the emperor, right? So they're basically saying that the, the government now in the Showa era is, is serving something else, not the emperor, but a kind of corrupt relationship between politicians, bureaucrats, the media, 
uh, and, and finance capital. Uh, and so we need to install a, a restoration through, through terrorism and, and murder. So this is really when, post-1932, when the surveillance of, of nationalists by police organs like the Special Higher Police and even the, the, um, the military police, the Kempe, really starts to ramp up. Uh, Minoda didn't condone the violence of the terrorists, but he still continued his agitation against people that he unilaterally labeled as friendly to communists, um, you know, still writing in his magazine, giving talks at rallies, organizing federations of nationalist organizations. And at first glance, it, it looks like it's, it's not really in coordination with, with the terrorists, which it was not. But he was really active in, in this campaign that I alluded to earlier to outlaw Professor Mino Betatskichi's interpretation of the Constitution as saying that the emperor was an organ, uh, not the essence, uh, as nationalists would have it, uh, an organ of the state. Um, uh, the, the imperial organ theory incident, which, uh, again, was, this, was the, the most notorious um, academic suppression incident in the history of imperial Japan. But what really alarmed uh, the police was that this turned into just a huge campaign that mobilized thousands of nationalist activists from around the archipelago um, uh, with all these kinds of, of lecture series and pamphlets and even sort of physical attacks on uh, Professor Minobe and, and other people. Um, and what was really visible was this idea of Showa restoration, um, uh, take down the Bakufu, uh, that kind of stuff. And so this Minobe affair or the Imperial Organ Theory incident is, I think, justifiably and correctly remembered as the most egregious example of academic suppression. But what's really interesting to me is that if we look at the police memos from that era, they barely mentioned Minobe. Uh, they only mentioned Minobe, the, the person who's being attacked, uh, as the person who's being attacked. And instead, the focus is on the activities of Minoda and other nationalists, and they're trying to really gauge the level of, of threat, right? What's going to happen when all these uh, thousands of, of nationalists come, come to Tokyo? And, and that's a really scary prospect for them. And sure enough, you know, it's only months after that that uh, the February 26th incident happens. That was really what they were uh, afraid of, was this series of uh, more assassinations. Uh, and there isn't a causal link between those, those two. But the police who were involved at the time say that this Minobe incident was a precursor to the February 26th coup d'etat attempt. And this is part of the, the broader kind of nationalist discourse that, they're ha that that's happening. Um, in terms of your question about how did this affect Minoda, I don't think at the time he was aware of being surveilled by the special higher police, but that surveillance and attempt to control radical nationalism continued throughout the 1930s and through the end of the war, and it, it, it ramped up to the point where he clearly was aware of it, and it constrained his work um, especially in the 1940s, when I think there's pretty good reason to believe that he was threatened at various occasions by, by the government. Some of his allies at Tokyo Imperial University were arrested for their criticism of the Tojo cabinet. Um, his paper rations were cut, so <laughs> he could barely uh, publish Geni Nippon uh, towards uh, the, the part of the 1940s. Uh, and 
what I initially found really striking was that Mino actually withdrew from the front lines of political debate in 43, way before the end of the war uh, came. I, I sort of had this idea that most nationalists, their, their politics ends in August of 1945, right? Far from it. Uh, the, they're being censored by the, the state uh, before that. And uh, I, I think you're right. I, I do see echoes of this in the United States today, right? Uh, the Japanese police shared certain nationalistic ideas with patriotic organizations and saw them as allies. They're quite explicit about that. But the rise in the frequency of nationalist terrorist attacks brought about a crisis. And, and of course, this is when the police began to adopt the word uyoku. And I think that's really important, right? Right wing uh, to refer to nationalist, the, their targets of, of surveillance among the nationalists. And what's key to this phenomenon is the fact that ryoku is a directional word that's devoid of, of content in and of itself. Uh, and because it's uh, devoid of content, it allows police to condemn certain nationalists of being outlaws without having to specify what it is about their patriotism that's inappropriate. Because it was extremely unpopular to criticize patriotism in the 1930s or, or really any time, right? So they don't want to do that. Uh, but they still want to denounce and surveil over these, these would-be or possible terrorists. So they have to come up with a certain kind of word to, to denote them. And, and uyoku is a really convenient word uh, to be able to do that. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I just, just to sort of summarize, I guess here. So the, the, uh, you know, the incident with Minobe, the, the imperial organ theory, uh, that's the, the fake news. And then you have, the, <laughs> no, anyway, um, but, but, but I think, you know, the, so you, you have, you do have, um, you know, as, as you've started to, to draw out here in the podcast as well, a lot of, um, resonances with things that have been going on, um, that particularly, I guess, our American audience will be very uh, familiar with. Um, and, and I actually saw another one of them, you know, it's a little bit facetious, but in, in the final chapter, uh, The Dream of Intellectual Leadership, um, which is is about a, a, another kind of great disappointment. Um, and the disappointment here is not in election results or whatever, um, but it's in the failure of these intellectuals' ideas to, as you put it, recapture the moral and intellectual authority of the nation's trajectory. Um, and, and it seems to me that this is in part um, because of an increasingly complicated, complex, um, diverse market of ideas that they're working in, and they're not able to sort of monopolize. Um, and, and here you focus on Minoda uh, in contrast and comparison to uh, Miki Kiyoshi. Um, so first, I think there's some listeners who are not familiar with Miki, so can you tell us about him uh, and about why you chose uh, him as a, a sort of comparison? Um, and then what do these two men, uh, Minoda and Miki, represent about the political currents uh, of Japan as it enters the 1940s? Sure, those are, are, are great questions. Um, Miki is a really complicated figure, uh, and I can't really do him justice uh, in just a couple of minutes, but very briefly, he was a philosopher educated at Kyoto Imperial University, which was home to the Kyoto School that I guess I began uh, this podcast with, uh, founded by the most famous philosophers of Japan at the time, Nishiya Kitaro and, and Tanabe Hajime. But he was also invested in Marxian philosophy and incorporated into his own philosophical systems and, and criticism, which I think made him somewhat unique within the Kyoto school with, 
with some um, uh, exceptions. Uh, but he was shunned by the establishment aca uh, academy because of his political allegiances and had a hard time kind of uh, keeping an, an academic position at a, at a university. Uh, and instead, he really made a name for himself as a public intellectual, writing in opinion magazines and working closely with uh, the uh, publisher Iwanami and really uh, succeeding in um, you know, providing political commentary that wasn't necessarily completely jargon, you know, compared to a lot of other intellectuals. But his legacy is complicated by the fact that he served in an organization called the Showa Kenkyukai, Showa Restor uh, Research Association, excuse me, uh, which was kind of a, a brain trust of Prince Konoe Fuyumaro, who would serve as prime minister a number of times. And uh, Miki wrote papers that basically map the ideological ideals of the Japanese empire there, which, you know, many observers uh, then and, and today see as complicit with Japanese imperialism. Uh, but uh, uh, he was later imprisoned for assisting a communist still under imperial Japan, and he, he died in prison uh, before the U.S. occupation released uh, political prisoners. So, you know, a very tragic end to his story, but very, very complex political legacy. Uh, the most straightforward reason why I take up Miki in this chapter is because um, Minoda was really fixated on him. He, he really focused his attention, his polemics on, on Miki. Um, but the more I read Minoda and Miki of this era side by side, the more I realized that they had similarly pedagogical programs. This is kind of related to what we were talking about earlier. Um, Miki was really aware I think, of the hypocrisy of the Pan-Asian rhetoric behind the official Japanese position in China. Uh, and he really wanted to develop an ideological program that would be more palatable to those being incorporated into the Japanese empire, uh, current imperial subjects and potential future imperial subjects, right? But his solution was to develop a really abstract theory of local leadership that really seemed to have no concrete linkage to what was happening on the ground. And so kind of building off of that, one of the things that surprised me while reading Minoda's writing from the late 1930s is how much he disagreed with the National Spiritual Mobilization Campaign, one of these big propaganda campaigns of the government, uh, I think starting in 1938. And he, the reason why he didn't like it was he essentially saw it as a technocratic social engineering uh, program that aimed to move people through messaging, which he found to be shallow and short-sighted. And instead, he was invested in this idea, again, of educating the public to build a nation of patriots who served the nation because they wanted to and not because they were nudged in that direction by the government to kind of give a behavioral economic sort of spin to it. So what I saw in Minoda and Miki is this kind of faith in intellectual leadership, right? That if intellectuals come up with good ideas and, and provide this kind of paradigm shift in ideology, the so-called masses will, will follow and, and, and they'll not just follow, but become uh, intellectuals of their own right, right, as they're being educated. And I, I frankly find it to be a pretty patronizing approach, but it just sort of underscores just how much ideology was crucial to both writers at the same time. Uh, disagree though they might over sort of the contents of that ideology. And I think the reason for this is the rising profile of technocracy during that period. Uh, both for Minoda and Miki, technocracy was something that's cold and mechanical and 
all about specialization, right? Opposed to more kind of a holistic view of humanity. Um, and what, so Minona and Miki are both philosophers and they, they see in, in humans this power, in their words, to, to synthesize different forms of knowledge and to create sort of general knowledge of that and create ideals towards which society is supposed to move. And technocracy should follow that ideas uh, formed by more humanist uh, philosophers like, like Minona and Miki, sort of this uh, intellectual leadership. <laughs> I like how you put it, the, the great disappointment. Um, I think that's right. Um, and uh, for, for Minoda and Miki, the great disappointment was in the failure of technocracy to create this, to sort of fixate on, on specialization and not create this sort of um, generalized idea in, in theory towards which society moves towards. But of course, it's sort of uh, what I end on here is is the the failure of the intellectual leadership of people like Minoda and Miki, um, and I, I think that's how they interpreted their own um, legacy as well. Uh, we we find at least Minoda to be extraordinarily depressed uh, with the direction of of the country, um, especially when he sees his own comrades at Tokyo Imperial University being arrested for being critical of of Tojo. Yeah, so I wanted to uh, just a really quick um, sort of follow up here uh, before before we before we wrap up. Um, so with Mitsui, you know, you talked about this uh, aestheticized uh, politics of emotion as being very much at the forefront of uh, his intellectual profile, um, and I found a, you know a sort of interesting contrast with his uh, student Minoda who ultimately ends up sort of moving in this much more technocratic direction, which strikes me as, you know, quite uh, a sort of intellectually led technocratic uh, sort of idealism, um, which strikes me as a rather different um, kind of trajectory, uh, even though in many ways their politics, as, as you show, do overlap. Um, is, is that fair to see them as diverging, you know, in, in terms of this sort of aestheticized emotional politics versus a kind of intellectual technocratic politics? Yeah, I can I, I see what you're saying there. Um, I think, I don't think there's an ideological uh, or on the level of ideas uh, divergence between Minoda and Miki, but um, Minoda was kind of placed in this position of, being incorporated into the technocracy. And this was a really clever idea on the part of government leadership to take people like Minoda who were agitating against the government and essentially to bureaucratize them, right? To put them in charge of different kinds of of committees within the national spirit mobilization campaign and stuff like this. So he's kind of thrown into this project of having in his mind to kind of convert the technocrats uh, and make them sort of uh, patriots in his in his own mold. So he he kind of needs to figure out how to um, engage technocracy in a way that um, you know convinces the, the control faction generals and the people in um, the kind of people that uh, uh, the late Aaron Moore descri- describes in his con- constructing East Asia and and uh, those those kinds of, of bureaucrats, but. But he's fed up with it, and he doesn't think it's it's working. Um, and uh, it's it's, uh, and I think that's a testament to how much he he's still sort of uh, in line with with Mitsui's kinds of ideas, right? That um, 
these people aren't, they've, they've become uh, specialized to the point where, where they don't um, share this kind of emotional sentiment that should be at the kind of natural foundation of, of their being of, as Japanese people. Well, I guess as all of our uh, academic uh, listeners will probably agree, there's nothing like committee work to defang the, uh, the most the most emotionally political of us. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> what a way to wrap up! Yeah. Um, so, so I want to. I do want to wrap up though. You've been extremely generous with your time, and I appreciate that. Um, but I did want to uh, sort of ask you um, now that the book is out, um, what is it that you're up to uh, now in terms of research? Yeah, I. Um... Recently, I think it's out, uh, maybe it's not, um, wrote an uh, article that's a little bit more about Mitsui, stuff that didn't make it quite into the, the book. It, it turns out that Mitsui especially was into a form of faith healing, hand palm healing that we might associate with, with Reiki uh, today. Um, and of course, he, the, there's this, like I talked about with a chapter on, on Marxism, uh, the kind of scientific discourse behind this, right? They want to make it scientific and, and national at, the same time um, and I, I couldn't quite figure out how to fit into the book so I, I ended up writing an article about it but um, I, I'm also uh, thinking more about the so-called Wioku in in uh, post-1945 right you, you talked about your your uh, experience at the, the picnics and stuff like that and, and the police officers you know this idea about using Wioku to refer to you know uh, extremist uh, patriotism is something that's been inherited by the, the current police, uh, and Wioku is a, a word that they, they use, and, and um, uh, the right wing continue to be targets of surveillance by, by the, the police. Um, and so I, I've been investigating that more. Um, there's one uh, article that I've published so far, but still in the beginning stages of that project. Well, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, I, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, you know, having you back on the podcast when that book comes out. And also uh, the the faith healing uh, article. I'm going to get my hands on that, uh, so to speak. Um, anyway, uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, I, think, I guess it's time to wrap up now. Um, but anyway, I, thank you again for uh, spending the time with us uh, to talk about your book. And I, like I said, I do hope we will have you back in the Thanks very much, Nathan. I really enjoyed this.